In this conversation, I speak with Leslie Udwin about her quest to end discrimination around the world, particularly violence against women and girls. We discuss the relationship between her acting and activism, her direction of India's daughter, the award-winning documentary in which she interviewed the rapists and murderers of Jyoti Singh in Delhi, and her founding of Think Equal, the not-for-profit that aims to undo hate by teaching children under the age of six how to love through empathy, emotion, and embodying the other as self. So welcome everyone to Beaconsfield Podcast. My guest today is a source of light in a world plunged so often into darkness. Leslie Udwin is a global citizen and leader of the highest order, a woman of extraordinary imagination, empathy, and grit. She's an activist impatient with the way the world is, the winner of the prestigious Anna Lind Human Rights Prize, the New York Times' number two most impactful women, woman of 2015, and the winner of the UN Women for Peace Activism Award. A former actor, she's the director of India's Daughter, the award-winning 2015 documentary in which she interviewed the rapists and killers of Jyoti Singh, the brilliant, promising young medical student brutally gang-raped and murdered in Delhi in 2012. But she's also the founder and executive chair of Think Equal, one of the world's most important non-profits doing extraordinary work on a global scale to make social and emotional learning a key part of the education system that seeks to paraphrase in the words of Aristotle, to educate the heart as well as the head. So Leslie, thank you so much for being with me and speaking with me in light of all of the internet issues. I'm so grateful. <laughs> Jack, it's lovely to be speaking to you and thank you for the kindness and, and refulgence of those words. <laughs> so Leslie, I thought what might be interesting to start is you've had a very fascinating life and it's very clear that you're a person of immense conviction and purpose. And you started as, a, started as an actor. You started as an actor. You worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company, I think. And I, I wanted to speak to you about the extent to which you think that very different part of your life is still with you when you come to activism. We want to get to know you and your story and how you got to this sort of work through acting. That is a brilliant question. And do you know what? No one has ever asked me that. Okay. And it is so true. I mean, there is no doubt that all of the training I had as an actor, the ability to conjure up stories to conjure up mm. issues, which at the end of the day, if you're going to be an inspiring leader, you have to do. You have to draw whoever it is you're addressing, whether it is you know, an audience at the UN or a, a, a podcast mm. or on a one-to-one -one basis, a policymaker who you're trying to persuade of the importance of what you're doing. Of course, it helps to have those tools. I don't say at one's disposal because you see, actors learn their skills early on, but then they forget all about them because they become endemic to their approach and their work. Mm. And so we have this for you know for gratis as it were because we've spent some time developing those skills and then they're, they're then they're ours but i think the most important thing about the correlation between me as an actor in the past 
and the work that I do now um, is empathy, which is one of the main competencies and skills that we teach our children. Can you teach empathy? Yes, of course you can, as long as you do it in a particular way, mm. as long as you do it experientially. Mm. And at the end of the day, there is nothing more powerful than going on a journey with another human being in a way that is visceral, in a way that is so concrete and palpable mm. that you are able to fully experience, not just understand, mm. but experience the pain of that individual, the joy of that, the relief of that individual, etc. Mm. And what does that better than drama or story or film or, you know, um, film or theater. I mean, imagine the process you're going through is you're sitting in a darkened room with a focus on a group of individuals who are going through a parallel journey in life as the one that every other human being on earth goes through <laughs> in a different form with a different set of circumstances. But the human experience is ultimately universal, which is how and why Think Equal can be in 16 countries mm. and get the same results from its randomized control tests in Botswana as in Australia. Yeah. And this is, you know, without having to adapt a program mm. Too much. We do adapt to a small degree where it is necessary for the learning to adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean by that is we always start the program with self-esteem and we have a book that shows um, the diversity and the celebration of that diversity mm -hmm. of the you and I in our country. So for mm -hmm. each country, we will somewhat re-illustrate that book to show the, the various uh, diversity of peoples. Mm. Uh, the book is called Me, Myself and I, and it's the different me, myself and I's in this particular country. Other than that, we really do not adapt. Mm. And the reason is that if we adapted our work, we would actually be echoing the stereotypes of that culture. And that is particularly what we want to try and break. If we adapted the work, mm. let us say for a country where women are fully expected to do a particular kind of work, <laughs> um, child rearing, providing the food for the family, etc., yeah, that would be a cultural adaptation, wouldn't it? Mm. But it would be absolutely running against Mm. the work we are trying to achieve, which is to break those stereotypes. Mm. And to come back to how, how I started this, what appears to be a diversion, but it's not, is that the human experience is universal at the end of the day. Mm. Now, of course, you look at people who are, have undergone abuse, extreme poverty. Yeah. 
we, we deal with different specifics and different expressions of abuse of human rights, discrimination against human beings, but actually the discrimination is universal. It is in every single country. Um, the film that I uh, did that was focused on India is equally true of every single country in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so the human experience is universal and that is why we are able to recognize when we sit and watch a play or watch a film. Mm -hmm. We do empathize because of that commonality of the universality of the human experience. And that's almost a political act, actually. It's an mm -hmm. act of extreme generosity to open oneself up to the experience of another and understand and experience what that human being is going through. That is when um, the world will find its, its peaceful and just and equal place it's is so when we are able to do that. And it's so fundamental and simple, actually, isn't it? Because it's about it's about who we are to each other and nothing else, right? It's about uh, it's about human what? being, yeah. It's about human being to human being, and that's what the reason I asked you that question, Leslie, was you know when I, I read in your biography that you were an actor, like it made complete sense because even even your language when you were speaking about this, whether it's at the UN, whether even it's the ethos behind India's daughter, it is an inherently radical language. And I mean that in the best way, in the sense that you refuse to cede the terrain to the status quos of the world that you're trying to work within and reform. And um, the universal human experience of who I am to you and who you are to me, and the dignity and respect that regulates that relationship, um, that clothes it in, in, in grace and a common connection, you know, that that is acting. Like that's to embody the sense of another without actually trying to rationalize it. And, uh, and this, and this brings me to something that I wanted to, you know, to do is to begin with speaking about India's daughter, because your, your story is very interesting because in some ways it seems like the, you know, like you couldn't almost anticipate the way that the events would, would move forward. Um, like I expect that the way things moved, you didn't even know they were going to go that way, that the story took you like an actor. <laughs> and, uh, so, so maybe do you want to do you want to start, Leslie, with with what happened in in 2012 in Delhi, and then what happened with you actually becoming a part of that of that very serious story, and the the film that arose out of that. Yes, but before I do, I just want to say, Jack, you're so insightful, and <laughs> honestly, the way you've just described, you know, much of what you've just said, I could not have expressed better myself. So I want to thank you for that. I want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Um, well, in 2012, December the 16th, um, a young girl called Jyoti Singh, uh, a young medical student, actually a physiotherapy student, but you know, generically <laughs> known mm. as a medical student on that bus. Mm. She went to see a film, Life of Pi at a mall with her male friend. And the film started at 6.30, came out at 20 to nine. The reason I'm mentioning this is it is significant in the story by 20 to nine, it was dark. And 
she and her friend tried to hail a taxi. He was accompanying her home, of course, to ensure her safety. And a bus stopped um, and asked where they were going. And then the bus pretended, as it were, <laughs> to be going that way, yeah. took them on board. And as they rode on the highways um, towards the, the girl's home, um, they overwhelmed the boy uh, and they gang raped her for about 45 minutes as this bus went round and round the highways. At the end of this horrific ordeal, her intestines were hanging out of her body and they threw her on the side of the road like a piece of rubbish to die. They threw her boyfriend out as well. He sustained a, a leg break as an injury. She survived for 13 days, miraculously. The doctors actually said, we didn't know which parts to join. That's the state that they had left this girl in. And some extraordinary protests erupted in India to me, the most admirable, beautiful sights I'd ever seen in my life. And they really just grabbed my heart. Um, I fell in love with those protesters. They were facing um, extreme crackdown from government. Governments always crack down when they see people in large numbers in the streets. They, they fear um, that that could turn into civil unrest of a serious um, nature. Uh, what they should be fearing is their policies that lead people to mm. come out of the streets with so much passion. Yeah. Um, but of course, they're not that enlightened, sadly, for the most part. Um, so people came out onto the streets, men and women. And I basically thought, you know, having been raped myself at the age of 18, um, this became sort of personal for me. Uh, personal in the sense that I looked at these people on the streets in their hundreds of thousands, in their millions it grew into, and it went on and on for over a month. And this was extraordinary. You know, we've seen some admirable and courageous protests in our time, right? But we've never seen protests like this that have gone on so relentlessly with so much passion and courage. And I felt they were out there demanding justice for me too. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I've never seen a country in the world other than India stand up with so much courage and, and beauty uh, in this way. Therefore, I must join them in some way. Now, I had two young children at home um, and, and a husband and a family that I owed an allegiance to. So could I go and join the protests? <laughs> no, not, not uh, very likely. But in any event, uh, now I know that protests don't do it. No Me Too movement will ever do it. No protest will ever do it. What we need is actual programmatic tools and action. Mm. So how did I reach that conclusion? 
by deciding that the way I could support the protests was to make a film. I was, after all, a filmmaker at yeah. that point. I'd ceased being an actress. I'd become a producer, um, uh, made you know, a few films, um, and then actually decided I'm going out there to make a film that will amplify the voices of these protesters and be a campaigning film. I was naive in those days, <laughs> I, know, I now say. But basically, um, I got to India, having started my research for about three months um, back at home then in Copenhagen. And um, I got to India and I thought, what the hell am I really doing? Mm. Amplifying the voices of the protesters. What, what does that mean? It's mm. a bunch of jargon. It's, it's rapid, it's, it's hollow, it's meaningless. What is this film really going to achieve? More awareness? Really? Do we really need more awareness? Are we not aware enough of this, you know, ubiquitous and relentless problem? Um, and I decided that unless I could sit in front of the men who pulled her intestines out of her body, look them in the eyes, and interview them and find out who they are and what enabled them as human beings to do this to another human being. Uh, until and unless I could do that, I thought I would, I would pack up and go home. There was simply no point in making another campaigning film. Yeah. And I did manage to persuade the director general of Tihar jail where the men were incarcerated um, and I was given permission to interview them after the trial. So I had to wait until they were convicted. Right. Couldn't interview them as under trials. And also I needed their permission. So they had to sign agreements as well as the jail having had to initially sign an agreement to allow me to interview them. Ah, oh, right. Now, because I'd been raped at 18, mm. I was suddenly struck by fear. I sort of hurtled headlong into this, you know, following my determined passion that this would yield the insights we, we needed. Um, and I then got terrified by the thought that what would happen, I believed, was that these ghosts that I had buried, and I really had buried. Now, remember, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, two generations above you, I think, Jack. <laughs> and in my day, <laughs> in my day, you didn't tell unless you absolutely had to. And I mean, that is just shameful. I can't believe that I, who am, you know, a campaigner in, in women's rights and ending violence against women, did not tell anyone, not even my best friend, when I was raped. And the reason was, and again, you know, I can empathize with women who don't tell because it is such a trauma and to such an unfair degree do people point fingers at the girl or the woman and say, well, what were you doing alone in a room with this man? What were you, you had had some drinks, hadn't you? How much had you been drinking? And in my case, I just thought, because I had survived, he was quite violent and I was terrified mm. that he would kill me. 
And because I wasn't killed, I actually thought, okay, I was only raped. I'll survive. I'll, I'll get on with it. I wasn't killed. I've got my life and that's what matters. And I told no one. The first person I told was my husband before we got married. And of course, since then, I've been speaking absolutely openly about it, which is critical for, for all of us who have been um, abused in, in any way to do, whether it's physically or emotionally or psychologically in any other way. Um, but my fear, Jack, was that these ghosts would mm -hmm. rise um, unbidden as I was sitting opposite these violent, brutal rapists, and that I would actually physically assault one of them. Mm. That was a very real fear for me. So I asked the director general of the prison and explained why and asked, could I please practice on other rapists who oh. I didn't need for the film so that if I do lose my control and attack one of them, Firstly, I want you to promise me that you won't arrest me for doing that. Oh. Um, uh, but I need to test my own metal because I knew as a filmmaker that if I lost those interviews, yeah. then my film was lost. And of course, by that point, I thought there was a huge purpose in making a film that interviewed those men. Wow. And indeed there was. So basically, I sat for 31 hours in total over several weeks with a bunch of rapists um, and then the rapists and murderers of Jyoti Singh. The very first one I interviewed of the, the practice run, I know it sounds bizarre, but that is what it was, um, was a young man called Gorov who had been in prison for five years at that point, had another five years to run for having raped a five-year-old girl. Mm. And I sat with him for three hours. He told me everything there was to know about this horrific rape that he'd perpetrated. He told me with absolute um, calm how he took her from both sides, how he put his hand over her mouth, but made sure her nose was still breathing so that she was able to breathe. Um, I suppose he felt quite proud of that fact. Um, and then at the end of the three hours, I asked him to help me understand how he could move from having the thought and not how he could actually, the way I phrased it was, help me understand what happens in your mind the process whereby you convert the thought, standing looking at her and thinking about what you want to do to her, to actually pouncing on her and doing it. When you are looking at a tiny little frame that is undoubtedly going to be hugely hurt, uh, a five-year-old probably whose life you're going to ruin, what goes on? Do you go in and out of questioning whether you're really gonna do it? Do you just, he looked at me like I was the biggest fool who had ever stumbled in his path. And he said, word for word, he said, she was a beggar girl. Her life was of no value. Her life was of no value. Mm -hmm. And he believed. Now, 
at that moment, I think, the vista opened up for me from focusing merely on a gender-based perspective to what feminists now call intersectionality. That girl had a double whammy. She was not only a girl and therefore of lesser value uh, and her feelings hurt, life destroyed, etc., was of less value than his needs and entitlement in that moment, but she was a beggar. She was of a low caste and, you know, in India, caste is a horrendous discrimination that it is unbelievable that in this century still exists without the world saying boo to India. And of course they don't because it's an emerging market and all they care about is money. That's all they care about, not human life, yeah. you know. So um, in South Africa, that same disgusting and despicable apartheid was dismantled due to international pressure. Mm. Why is the same not happening with this despicable caste system, which is apartheid, only based on an accident of birth as opposed to the color of the skin? Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I diverge, but actually it's important to say, it's not, it's, it, it's not actually, um, a, a di diverting from the subject because um, the mere fact that her caste played a role here led me to understand that discrimination, the discriminatory mindset is the disease we're dealing with here. It's not the actual violence or abuse. We focus so much on the outcome um, but the violence is the symptom of the disease, I would say, and of course the outcome of it, hmm. but it is not the disease itself. Right. The disease okay. is the discriminatory mindset. Yeah. And that discriminatory mindset operates on any basis, religion, race, caste, class, economic background, gender, yeah. one could go on. But it's very important, therefore, to understand that when, th when I got to think equal and mm. the understanding that this was the solution, the only way we can move forward with all of these discriminations and, and abuses is to change the mindset. Mm. Nothing else will do. Mm. Nothing will do. We are fooling ourselves mm. if we think that we're tackling this problem by creating more sh uh, shelters for domestic violence victims. We're normalizing the situation in doing that. Now, of course we have to do that. Of course we have to protect and take care of the victims and survivors of mm. violence, but we cannot for a second allow ourselves to fool ourselves into thinking that that is any kind of solution. It's not a solution. It's a plaster on a wound and it's a plaster that actually doesn't stick. So we really need to rethink how we are tackling this. We have to tackle the root cause and we have to do so at an age in the human beings formation where mindset can be formed pro-socially. 
Right. Um, so that's, you know, in a nutshell, how the film, I mean, there's also, you know, how did I focus in on education as being the solution? Yeah. Um, but maybe I've said enough about that transition from, from film to um, understanding what the solution to that problem that the film laid bare was. Um, happy to, to talk more about, you know, how did I, for example, focus on education as the solution, but a very particular kind of education. Of yeah. course, when I say education, I do not mean the broken system, not fit for purpose that we are giving our children in order to move them into the labor market and give them ways of earning money. That's not education um, in its true sense. And that's not all that education should be. Mm. Can I just first acknowledge the immense courage of you doing that? I mean, it is the most serious act to play because it seems to me that what happened was that you you know, you went into that situation knowing that it would be extremely confronting because the universal would emerge out of it, but it would be extremely personal for you. And uh, it seems to me that the kind of radical reform that we're all trying to affect in our small ways on this major, major issue, you know, that can't be brought about unless that courage is driving it, unless we do engage and understand the mentality, the attitudes that propagate this. Um, and it's in that deep, dark place that we don't want to go, like to speak to one of these people who has done that, especially when you have come from an experience like that. I mean, it demands enormous courage. And it just, you know, thinking about, I've been reflecting all day on what you've been doing with Think Equal and this documentary, and it all comes out of that, out of that courage. So you're, you're truly an extraordinary person. <laughs> That's the... Um, really kind of you to say so. I mean, honestly, I really mean this now. I'm not being sort of falsely humble or anything. I really mean this. I just am driven. I don't see myself at all as extraordinary. I could not do any other than I did. You know, mm. I didn't choose yeah, to do this. I had to do it. There was no choice. Wow. And so, you know, for me, I mean, there was a point at which I almost came home. I was overwhelmed. I started having panic attacks. I had a breakdown and um, I almost gave up and came home. So, you know, it was that, that the more I understood our culpability in these men's attitudes, and that is the critical thing. So this dark place you speak of, what we need to do is really go to that dark place and start acknowledging mm. that we as a society are teaching, let's take the gender issue for now. We are teaching our boys mm. to be elitist and entitled and, you know, we, we are programming them. And the thing, again, you know, we, we mentioned um, empathy earlier on and how critical that was. Mm. I actually did find myself empathizing with these rapists. I have to tell you, wow. I didn't, not only did I not assault one of them, I actually didn't feel anger through these interviews. And that is what astounded me. And the reason I didn't was that it was so glaringly obvious that these men had been 
robotically programmed to think as they think. Mm. Because remember, I asked them, I started off, that's why it was a three hour interview. Mm. I started off with, I think I had 150 questions. Mm. And a lot of them, you know, started off by, by discussing their attitude towards women, who the most significant women in their lives were, um, what they think a woman is and should do, and what they think a good woman is, and what they think a bad woman is. It was so obvious mm. that they were all, you know, they were robots. That is why they did not express remorse or regret, any of them, not for one second in the 31 hours of interview because they genuinely didn't believe they'd done wrong, because they'd been programmed to believe in the case of the girl on the bus, Jyoti, she was out at night. That's why I mentioned the time that she left the cinema. Yeah. It was dark. Her rapists believed, not just said, but believed that because she was out at night after dark, she was a bad girl. She was also with a boy who wasn't her husband or her brother. That means she was a slut. And they actually said, not only did she deserve what she got, but we had a duty to mm. teach her. Mm. Who has taught them to think like that? Mm. Society has, sociocultural thinking has. So when we allow a certain type of imagery to, um, you know, abound in Bollywood movies, on billboards, images of women in a particularly sexualized, objectified way. When we teach our boys from the outset that a girl is of less value, and in many cultures around the world, we do that quite explicitly yeah. with no sense of shame, yeah. right? The girl is destined to water your neighbor's garden, right? She's destined to be married into another family. You have to work very hard to get a dowry together to give, even though it's illegal. Now that's a very important point. Culture. Dowry made illegal, but yeah. culture trumps law. Yeah, absolutely. Culture trumps everything. Yeah. And if we don't accept and understand that in the UK, we are teaching our boys that they are the ones who are going to be the leaders. They're the ones who are going to be the, they're going to earn more. They're going to, mm. and that is, that is then what happens. That's what takes place. Mm. So it's utterly hypocritical of us mm. to say those men are monsters and to distance ourselves from them. We are as close to them as you can be. We've taught them how to think. And now we complain when they go out and act on those mindsets that we've given them. So the only way we can responsibly own that and do something about it is by taking the responsibility in early childhood education to put as the core purpose of early childhood education, and it has to be, categorically has to be before the age of six. 90% of the adult brain is fully formed by the age of five. Mm. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can put that foundation that is necessary for a child to grow into a loving, empathetic, collaborative, kind, inclusive mm. human being 
mm. who celebrates diversity, who loves mm. and, and does not hate, you know, Nelson Mandela so informed all of my work in his two quotes, one of which was, education is the most powerful tool we have to change the world. And of course, the kind of education he meant was what concerned me because, you mm -hmm. know, in my film, the lawyers who I'd interviewed, the rapists' lawyers. Vile people. <laughs> vile, right? More, more misogynistic than the rapists themselves. And, and yet and they had the sense of justice from which they were speaking as well. They thought it was right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, because that is what they've been taught, you see. Mm. And, and their education, as, as high a degree of education as they had, not just finishing secondary school, which, by the way, only one of the rapists did, and that falsely led me to think that that was a factor. But oh. then after I interviewed the lawyers, I realized it has nothing to do with it. Mere access to education is not going to change anything. Oh. It's contents. It's what we teach our children not how many of them we teach or how long we teach them for, because the education system we actually have is only geared towards giving our children a job. Mm. It is the same uh, industrial revolution model that was created more than 200 years ago, nothing much has changed. And that was about filling factories. And we're complete idiots because in any event, the whole labor market, the face of the jobs market has absolutely fundamentally changed and mm. is changing in front of our eyes every day with mm. AI and robots taking over the majority of the jobs. We have to bring in the missing subject, the missing third dimension to education, which is the education of children's hearts, responsibilities as human beings, uh, there are 25 competencies and skills that yeah, we teach right. with things. Um, and they are the usual suspects, if you like. You know, when you look at other <laughs> social emotional learning programs, you will find mindfulness and emotional literacy, emotional regulation. These are critically important. But we have to teach our children gender equality. Yeah, how do you do this? How do you, how do, you do that? So that's. So like if we take some values like respect and, and dignity for human beings, going back to you talking about, you know, as actors trying to, who are we to each other? How do you get kids to think in that way? Um, like what can you actually do with kids to teach them about dignity and respect and to teach them that their dignity is affirmed by the way they treat the dignity of others? I think that's the key part too. It's a relationship. Right. How Absolutely. do you do that? Yeah. We do it with concrete tools, which we've spent four years now developing with yes. world experts. Yes. So we had Sir Ken Robinson, who's one of the greatest oh, educators right. in the world, the two co-founders of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, um, Professor Richard Davidson, neuroscientist from mm. the Institute for Healthy Minds, Vicky Colbert from Colombia, Sheila Wamahiu from Ken, you know, <laughs> uh, Dr. Urvashi Sami from India, who's an expert at empowering girls through education. I brought together these global experts. Wow. And we started with my understanding, and this is where, you know, my contribution as an ex-actor, ex-filmmaker, mm. um, really did bear fruit here. Because knowing what I know about empathy mm. and how you can experience empathy, 
knowing how neuropathways are formed in the developing brain, because I had researched it and worked at that, you can only form a neuropathway when it is experienced and repeated and practiced. If it's not repeated, pairing takes place in the brain, P-A-R-I-N-G, and those synapses and, and fall away and your neuropathway is not formed. If you do form these pro-social neuropathways in early childhood, they will last right to the end of your days. Wow. So knowing that was the destination, if you like, to form pro-social, to co-construct with the children, pro-social neuropathways. And why co-construct? Because they had to experience it and reach the, the level of learning themselves so that it was experiential learning. Mm. Um, knowing how critical empathy was, that that was the glue that would bind the other 24 competencies and skills that we decided have to be taught. Mm. Um, I then immediately knew as a given from the off that narrative picture books and stories and character was to be the spine of this program. So we have three age appropriate levels, one for children from three to four, level two, four to five, and level three, five to six. Right. Each one of those levels is 30 weeks. Wow. Okay. As serious and long as the academic year, uh, how can we possibly say and have any dignity in saying so, that it is compulsory for our children to learn numeracy and literacy, but it's optional for them to learn how to value another human being. It's just laughable, it's pathetic, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so it must have the same gravitas and space mm. um, and repetition, repetition is critical. So we have three lessons a week. Now in early childhood, there is always room for that. We're not fighting with, you know, your two maths periods a day and your, you know, um, full syllabus from the age of six onwards. We're under six. We have never found one teacher say, uh, and we, we're now with 129,000 kids, um, exponentially um, scaling month by month, literally. Our next program, which is we've been asked to do in Rajasthan in India, mm. will teach 525,000 children wow. in, in this one year, as long as we can raise the funding. That's the only thing keeping us from starting it. Um, and so books are the spine mm. and we have a book a week. Now, remember some of these kids won't read more than a book in a year. <laughs> they're lucky enough to come across a book. So suddenly they have every week a book with mm. a thrilling story from some other part of the world that is teaching them. And every book has got the diversity and beauty of races and, you know, uh, forms of religious dress and how human beings express their identity um, in, in these diverse and magnificent ways. And we celebrate that from day one. And these three lessons a week reflect 
reflect on the theme and themes of that particular book. Mm. So if we are dealing with a book in which we're looking at occupations and what different people do to be helpful and to be good um, within society and to you know, help others. Well, we now have a lesson which looks at various occupations in the world and we play games with cards where we match the girl astronaut to the boy astronaut and the girl scientist to the boy scientist. Hmm. And from the beginning, they understand there are no barriers. There's no such thing. We have a book called Mum Loves Me, Dad Loves Me. Um, and in that book, we have parenting cards and the book itself shows, it's a book that starts from each end. So the mother section starts up to the middle of the book from the, the front cover and the father section starts from the back cover to the middle. Um, and they then- They each other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in each section, the father is taking care of the baby, feeding the baby, changing the baby's nappies, tidying the child's room as the child grows, um, reading a book with a child, etc. And the mother is doing the same. So there is no question of division of labor mm -hmm. in terms of loving and, and rearing children mm -hmm. that fathers and mothers do this equally. Mm -hmm. We have books about um, boys who feel sad but don't feel able to cry. Mm. And we work through how critically important it is. There's one book called Fessel is Not Himself, you know. Oh. <laughs> Three-year-olds yeah. understanding that it is critically important. All emotions are okay, and it's critically important to express them. This holds true whether you're a boy child or a girl child. And in fact, in the book, Fessel is not himself, it's the father who gives the boy the advice to say, you must cry, my son. You mm. must, mm. you have to express our feelings. Mm. It's healthy, it's important. And then of course, we teach them how to regulate big emotions and what to do when they feel angry. Um, how to, you know, how to stay, um, greed or impulse or we teach them this they need these tools mm. i mean suicide is the number one disease um sorry it's the number one killer of young men under the age of 40 in the uk and it's getting increasingly the same in the rest of the world boys are starting life at a huge disadvantage and when we teach gender equality we're teaching our boys also mm to not be hidebound and suffocated by this terrible toxic stereotype we put on our boys. Man up, don't cry like a girl, yeah. right? We have to take care of both of them, of all of our children. And it works, Jacob. It is mind blowing how this works miraculously. And do you, Leslie, that's, do you find that the kids once they go on, they notice that the way that they view the world in this kind of moral human sense is out of step with the way that the world that they go back to is in. Do they recognize that difference? Well, no, we don't have reports from teachers yeah. about them 
um, talking about, but my mummy doesn't or my daddy doesn't, mm -hmm. but they must come across that. They must. Wow. It cannot be yeah. right? Um, it's a very interesting question because when we get to a point where we have time to investigate that, yeah. it will be wonderful yeah. to start you know, incorporating some study of families and particular children and to, to delve into that a little bit. We are definitely engaging parents now, which- Tell, we me, about, tell me about that, because I was going to, that was my next question. Because the question was, is there a way to, like even in Australia where we're going through this recently highlighted crisis of sexual violence in our schools, a lot of the debate has been around, how do we bring parents with us on this? And so if the brain, you know, between at the ages of three and six, if that's when the neuroplasticity allows for these teachings to actually become embodied and real, does that mean that we just can't do anything about the people whose attitudes are already set, parents who are incapable themselves of, of teaching their kids about these things? Brilliant question, Jack. Yeah. And I, I'm always honest, right? So I'm going to be honest here and yeah. say, I believe we can ameliorate and improve parents' attitudes, but I do not believe for a second that we can really change them. Yeah. I think to change the attitudes once they are entrenched, which is after the age of six, mm. to change those attitudes, we need to employ therapists. Right. Uh, which is a, and yeah. we're not even bothered at this stage to spend a pittance. Do you know how much Pink Equal costs? We're a charity. It's yeah. direct cost. It's a joke what this costs. Yeah. Ends up being $2 per child. Not, <laughs> not per year, Jack. Not <laughs> per week or per day. For the rest of their lives. Wow. That's, okay. that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke. So every classroom could have this program. There is almost no classroom that can't afford this program. And I think it is almost criminal neglect that we're not mm. rushing to put this program. It's ready, it's there. We mm. don't have to develop it. We've spent four years developing it. Now, you know, I pray that there will be other iterations of this program that are as comprehensive, because I think what's unique about Think Equal is the number of competencies and skills, mm. you know. We, we, we teach, as I say, those competencies that no one else is actually yet teaching. Gender mm -hmm. equality, environmental stewardship, yeah. peaceful conflict resolution. You know, these are all subjects within themselves that are critically important to teach. Mm -hmm. um, Self-esteem is so critically important, you know? So, and when you look at, you know, the OECD has finally woken up um, and decided that 21st century skills, <laughs> no, you know, we didn't ever need them in any other century, by the way, <laughs> 21st century skills, right? Yeah. Anyway, their 21st century skills, at last they have, you know, done work on what these should be, etc. They have come up with a list of 16 which is wonderful. It's, it's the longest list other than Think Equals I've ever seen. But of course, much of it is geared towards, you know, collaboration, communication, problem solving, critical thinking, things that are still very much associated with work. Mm -hmm. The ones they leave out 
are the gender equalities and the inclusion and which, is, which are skills right that's that you do these things absolutely uh, yeah absolutely. and you learn to to value them you learn to create you know these neural pathways that tell you that every human being is of equal value and mm. um, ubuntu is a beautiful african philosophy and that was the very first um uh, you know, when, when we came to labeling, what are our influences? What, who and what? Obviously, you know, Frere and Vygotsky and Montessori and Gardner. But at the very beginning, when I sat with uh, my education director and said, what is going to be our underlying philosophy, our real purposeful pedagogy and or philosophy? And we decided it was Ubuntu, which is... And it's no, no coincidence that actually Ubuntu is African and so was Mandela. Mm -hmm. um, Ubuntu is, you are the other me, I am the other you, and we can only be human together. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately is, and it's also why we call ourselves think equal, because if you do think equal, if you ascribe equal value to each and every human being, then you cannot rape, you cannot murder, you cannot bully, etc. It's not who you are, your values are, are different and they're so real, yeah. And Nelson Mandela, the other quote, you know, when I was searching for what did he mean by education, because he sure as hell did not mean this system that we are, you know, foisting on our children. Um, and I came across it and it was just luminously blinding. People I think know of it now because Obama popularized it. He used it at um, the funeral of a very um, eminent um, human rights, uh, civil rights activist who sadly died. Um, and he said, no child is born hating another human being because of the color of his skin, his, uh, religion or any other factor, a child has to be taught to hate. Mm. If he can be taught to hate, mm. he can be taught to love, which is absolutely true. So that essentially is what Think Equal does. It teaches our children to love. It does it in a way that is replicable. It's actually prescriptive so that those teachers who are not highly trained or highly brilliant or might be lazy or might be overstressed and don't have time. Whatever the reason, around the world, we don't yet have brilliantly trained early years teachers. Why? Because we haven't valued uh, the early years. The most critical window of opportunity we have to actually change a human being for the better, we have treated as babysitting mm, mm, periods of mm. one's life, right? The time where you just take care of my kids while I go out and earn a crust, right? Make sure they play and are happy, full stop, excuse me. That's when they are forming their very identity, which will then stay for the rest of their lives. Mm. Plow all of your resources mm. into ensuring that you're going to nurture and develop those children well. Mm. So we have made the program prescri prescriptive in our lesson plans. So I said, there are three lesson plans spinning off every book we have. So every week, three lessons. And those lesson plans are absolutely prescriptive, step by step. And it's mostly ask the children this. Mm. Discuss 
this question with your children because it's about co-construction. It's not about seeing the child as a passive recipient of some knowledge. Yeah. I mean, looking at empathy again, no point in wagging your finger at a child and saying, put yourself in that person's shoes. Think about how that person is feeling. Meaningless. Right. Meaningless. Like, yeah. Because it's a theoretical piece of nonsense, right? Yeah, it comes yeah. and goes, it's gone. But feel yeah. what that person is feeling through this story, through these characters, empathize actively, actually, experientially with that human being. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking. Now we have a neuropathway that's begun to form. And if we keep doing this through that, even mm -hmm. if it's only a year that they're doing this program, the empathetic neuropathways will form and remain for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, Leslie, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that we're coming up to time, but I don't think you are an actor turned actor. No, no. I, think, I, I, think I think you're both an actor and an activist because it's the same job. Um, you know, what you are doing is that you are teaching people how to embody themselves in a way that they can also embody the other. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that comes to mind when you say that. It's, um, you know, you're undoing hate by, by, by teaching and sharing in love with people. And it's, uh, it's if, you know, even, even if we go back to the immense darkness of, of that event of you going there and meeting with those men and of what happened to, to Jyoti Singh, I mean, this is the most not only the most effective way to respond, but it's also the most poetically human way. I mean, there is something so powerful about the idea of going from, you know, what happened on that bus to Diego's great idea and Amazing Daisy and me, myself and I. There's this kind of care and love shown in that, which is so special. So thank you so much for, for speaking with me. I find your journey so powerful and, and fascinating and interesting and uh you are, su you are super inspiring in the work that you're doing. I mean, it sets a model for how leaders should be themselves in coming to this work. And I think that that's a really, a really uh, important thing. So thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking with me. Thank you, Jack, so much. And let's, let's work at bringing this more and more to our countries, whoever's listening, you know, every country needs this, every yeah. child. Every. Trump not needs this. <laughs> every human being and that's what you said before this is not you know it's it, it expresses itself differently across culture sure but it's the same thing it's the mentality well thank Jack, you so much what a beautiful interviewer you are <laughs> thank you Leslie thank you, very much. Thank you so much